0: don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet, finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host
1: of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
2: Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority
3: in cases to uh, raise the dignity of woman
2: and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Abortion: The Body Politic, Part Three. Today, we explore that historic 1973 decision and its unraveling in the five decades that followed. But let's begin where we left off.
4: When someone doesn't really know who I am and they've heard that I'm a lawyer, but they don't know much about me, and I'd say, Well, have you ever heard of the case of Roe versus Wade? And then they're usually stunned because, I mean, it, it's often still described as the most, one of the most well known cases in favor of abortion that there is. My name is Linda Nelling Coffey, and I and my late friend Sarah Weddington were two women that, that pursued the case of Roe versus Wade.
0: It's impossible to talk about the abortion rights movement without first talking to Linda. Linda is the last Living Roe prosecutor after Sarah Weddington died on December 26, 2021. Linda knows the case intimately. And at 80, she's witnessed the decades long fight to chip away at Roe. She spoke to us from a studio not far from her home, which she shares with her longtime partner, Becky Hart.
5: I had the distinct honor of having a blind date with Lee Kogan December the 15th, 1983. And over the course of a whole evening, she said that she had worked with Sarah Weddington on this Roe v. Wade case. And I said, well, no, that can't be. I'm a Dallasite. It was a Dallas attorney named Linda Coffey. And her face <laughs> fell because she's that introverted. So for 38 years, we've been together. She's done mostly bankruptcy law, and I've done different jobs and things. Linda is a lifelong Texan
0: and lives in a small town about 85 miles east of Dallas. She was born in Houston, graduated from Rice University, and went on to
4: law school. I went to University of Texas at Austin, and there were only about, including me, there was only about six women in the, the class that, that I started with. And we all would talk together, in the one place we usually could talk and, and not have to worry about anyone overhearing us was in the the women's restroom, which was on the first floor of the building. We were coming up at a time when things were changing quickly for women. I was really excited to think about helping women prepare to gain higher positions and to to seek a way of continuing their education and and not be compromised or, or having to worry about being fired if they became pregnant or had someone decided they had too many children and they might not continue to do a good job.
0: After graduating from law school with honors in 1968, getting the second highest score on the state bar exam, Linda earned a coveted clerkship with Judge Sarah Hughes, Texas's first female federal judge, who was best known for swearing in Lyndon B. Johnson. Aboard Air Force One after President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963.
6: And I will
5: and I will Once again, here's Becky Hart. It's hard to get a clerk job for the judges. You have to be intelligent and do very well in law school. Succinctly, Linda's scores were so high that she applied for that job and she got it. It's an honor And that's what set the whole ball in motion on abortion rights. The first case that I was aware of was the case out in California.
0: In 1967, California Governor Ronald Reagan was among the first to liberalize abortion laws, extending exceptions for therapeutic abortions. But the case Linda's talking about came two years later in 1969. The People versus Bellis. The 4 to 3 decision from the state's Supreme Court declared California's 1850 criminal abortion law unconstitutional. The ruling helped repeal a conviction of Dr. Leon P. Bellis, who helped a woman get
4: an abortion. It was a big, big news deal. So I just read about the case just in the Dallas Morning News. And then I knew there were some other cases. That then followed, on, like there was a case in Wisconsin, and then there was a case in New York. So that's why I thought that there would be a decent chance to win the case if we filed in Texas. I still kept in contact with some of the, with Sarah Weddington and some of the other women that, it, that I knew in my class that had graduated. One of the things I did when I decided that I had a sufficient basis was I wrote to Sarah because I had heard she was planning to file a, a suit against the Texas abortion law. So I wrote her a letter and suggest, to see if she was interested in, in joining me in that suit. They teamed up, and on March
0: 3, 1970, Linda filed a suit in Dallas on behalf of their client, Norma McCorvey, using the pseudonym Jane Rowe.
4: The hearing before the three judge court in Dallas went, went pretty smoothly.
0: The lower court unanimously ruled in Jane Roe's favor, finding the Texas abortion law unconstitutional because it violated the right to privacy. But when the district attorney, Henry Wade, yes, that Wade, announced he would continue to pursue abortion cases, Linda was able to file a repeal directly to the Supreme Court. Oral arguments were set for December 13th, 1971.
2: We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe uh, row against uh, Wade. Mrs. Whitington, you may proceed whenever you're ready.
3: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the
5: court. The instant case is a direct appeal from a decision of the United States District Court for the Northern District of Texas.
0: And then again on October 11th, 1972.
2: First in number 70, 18, a row against Wade.
0: Yes, Linda and Sarah had to re-argue the case, a rare occurrence, because there were only seven justices present the first
2: time. Mrs. Weddington, you may proceed whenever you're ready.
4: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, we are once again before this court to ask relief against the continued enforcement of the Texas abortion statute and ask that you affirm the ruling of the three-judge court below which held our statute unconstitutional for two reasons. The first, that it was vague, and the second, that it interfered with the Ninth Amendment right of a woman to determine whether or not she would continue or terminate a pregnancy. As you will recall, there are...
0: Linda recalls a few details that stand out about her Supreme Court experience.
4: The closest restroom to where the Supreme Court held their arguments was three, three big staircases below. People would probably notice that if they were women, but not, not men. And at
0: one of the arguments, some of the justices' wives were sitting in the courtroom.
4: I wouldn't have recognized the wives, but I just heard as we were walking in that several of the wives of the Supreme Court were there, so I just assumed that that probably meant from people that had been around more at Supreme Court arguments than I had that that was probably a good sign that it was considered important by the court. While Linda and Sarah
0: split the oral arguments in the lower court, it was Sarah who presented in the Supreme Court. Linda took notes.
4: She spoke and I thought she did very well. And it was kind of hard to write everything down. So I I tried to just write down the questions because I figured I'd remember the, the answers. I think I was probably more nervous that time. I wasn't that nervous before the three-judge court in Dallas, but to get it when you're really going for the highest court in the land.
0: Curiously, the original Roe decision was leaked too. A Supreme Court clerk shared the court ruling on background to a Time Magazine reporter. But when the decision was delayed slightly and Time, a weekly, ran the story anyway, it appeared in print the day before the actual decision was handed down.
4: I first read the Time magazine that said the Supreme Court was ready to overrule the Texas abortion law and it was gonna be about a a 7-2 vote. So I'd, I'd read about it, I think, the day before it came out and Sarah said she found out about it when she heard the decision that was rendered the next day. And that's when she started getting, her phone was calling. and and at first she wasn't sure what it was, and they were then they were saying that we had won. and that was just that was just great because the phones were calling and everything was mostly mostly on the only the people that called were very positive about it. I really thought that was going to be it after the the first Supreme Court victory. But the afternoon after the decision in Roe v. Wade came out, LBJ died. The senior partner in the firm that I was with came in and said, well, you've been knocked off the front page because LBJ died. And, and that's what was the, the the headline in the Dallas Morning News. And then our story, I think it was below what they call below the fold.
0: Here's abortion legal scholar Mary Ziegler to help explain the details of the decision.
7: The Supreme Court voted seven to two in 1973 that that law was unconstitutional and that it violated a constitutional right to privacy that the court had recognized in earlier rulings on things like marriage and contraception. The court held that right to privacy was broad enough to encompass the decision about whether to have an abortion. And the court laid out what at the time was called a trimester framework that uh, would be used to determine if abortion laws were constitutional. The court also rejected a lot of key anti-abortion arguments, like the argument that the Constitution recognized fetal personhood, which would have made abortion unconstitutional nationwide. So coming out of Roe, you know, the, the majority of state laws that were then on the books were rendered unconstitutional.
0: We'll be right back.
9: at purdueglobal.edu. Sisters. Bring Bring sisters.
10: Well, I think it depends on where you stand and who you are, whether you think that Roe was successful or unsuccessful. Historian, Ricky Solinger. When feminists and other women experienced the Roe v Wade decision in 1973. They expected that a nationalization of the right to abortion would lead to a number of transformative experiences for women in the United States. They expected marriages that were more equal. They were possessors of their own sexuality, that they could have premarital sex without the fear of unwed pregnancy and the shames that that had carried for several decades. They felt much safer embracing their own sexuality and pursuing it. Then, of course, there were the economic expectations that If you can control your fertility, you have a much better chance of being able to pursue the educational programs that you set before yourself, making professional choices, being able to get a job that you can time your maternity according to your professional growth, that you can stay or go where you can. be an equal to your husband, and also be economically independent, that changes the landscape so profoundly that you're hardly the same person anymore. That that has enormous repercussions for what woman means. Other women have been very clear-eyed about the limits of the impact of legalization.
5: As
6: Black women, we knew that Roe was going to be inadequate to protect us from the intersectional oppression.
0: Activist, academic, and one of the founders of the reproductive justice movement, Loretta Ross.
6: The National Council of Negro Women wrote a statement about that in 1973 the, and in response to Roe when they talked about how Roe will become just another way to deny Black women our full human rights, our full right to self-determination. And the reason we know that or knew that was because there were so many other ways that we had already experienced where Black women's parenting and reproductive options were being threatened, like with sterilization abuse. But more egregious and more obvious was that any time Black women became civically active around voting rights or housing rights or trying to fight violence that was happening to them, any of that time, the first thing the government would do was be to threaten to take our children away. (laughs) You know? And fighting for abortion rights didn't address that. We always knew that Even if we had fully funded abortion services that were totally safe and totally accessible, we'd still suffer from a racialized gender oppression that we had to fight. The leaders
10: of reproductive justice point out regularly that abortion has been legal for 50 years, but how accessible has it been to women without, resources to be adequate consumers. So we know that within two years of Roe, uh, the Congress worked very hard to pass the Hyde Amendment, which by, by the 1977 was complete, which said no federal funding for abortion. The one medical procedure that was singled out to be excluded from federal funding um, under the Medicaid Act. And that meant that poor women
6: were poor choice makers. The pro-choice framework assumes that you have choices. It's a marketplace idea when actually the marketplace doesn't work well for people who don't have you know, the, the currency or the privilege of the marketplace. It doesn't. Uh, the same way that the SBA, the Texas abortion ban, is not gonna fall most heavily on women with the means to go to another state. It's gonna fall most heavily on the people who are trapped, who can't go anywhere. The Norman G. McCorvey's of the world, the original Rose, who ironically was from Texas.
0: Loretta understands this all too well. She's the survivor of sexual violence and sterilization. You might recall some of Loretta's story from episode two.
6: At Howard University, while I was a student there, I accepted implantation of the IUD called the Dalkon Shield. In
0: 1973, despite her IUD causing acute pelvic inflammatory disease, a doctor refused to take out the device, and her fallopian tubes burst.
6: I didn't enter this movement fighting for abortion rights. I was I ended the movement fighting for the right to have children. And it wasn't until I got into the work that I saw that they were two sides of the same coin. And it's all about denying women the right to, con- to make our own reproductive decisions, whether to have a child or not to have a child. And then when you intersect the sexual violence I had been through, then I knew that we needed a larger framework than what the current discussions were paralyzed by that pro-life, pro-choice dichotomy, which was so inadequate for describing my lived experiences. And so how reproductive justice was developed was... At a conference organized by the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance in June of 1994 in Chicago. On the first day of the conference, we heard a presentation by a representative of the Clinton administration. Hillary Clinton had been put in charge of the Clinton administration effort to do health care reform. But this representative said that they knew it was going to be a fight to get health care care reform passed the republicans and so they conceptualized that if they omitted or at least reduced all references to reproductive health care that that would increase its chances of passage there were 12 of those black women who were at this conference there probably might have been even more but Abel Mabel Thomas, who was a Georgia state representative at the time, called us together in her hotel room that night after we heard this presentation. And she's like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would they come to a feminist conference, a pro-choice conference, ask us to endorse a health care plan that omits reproductive health care? That's like the most male-centric health care plan you could think of. Because reproductive health care is what drives women to the doctor. That was the night in which we conceptualized reproductive justice. Because the other thing that we realized was that we were dissatisfied with how abortion was always isolated from social justice issues. And that isolation wasn't doing us any good or representing what black women went through. Because anytime a woman is pregnant, oh, well, let's put it this way. She doesn't even have to be pregnant. Anytime her period is just late, she has what we call these, oh my God, conversations. Oh my God, am I pregnant? Oh my God, what am I gonna tell my mama? Or what am I gonna tell my partner? Or am I gonna keep my job? Or can I stay in school? Or do I even have a bedroom to put this child in? So she's got good answers to the, oh my God, questions. she's going to turn an unplanned pregnancy into a wanted child but if she has bad answers to the oh my god question she may even turn a planned pregnancy into an abortion and so for the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement to both start with the pregnancy is starting too far downstream in our opinion if you really want to quote reduce the need for abortion really Talk about how actual human beings make decisions and address those things that discourage people from becoming parents. And so we splice together social justice and reproductive rights to create the term reproductive justice. We define reproductive justice as the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and the right to raise your children in safe and healthy environments. And then that was how we articulated it in 1994. But by 2004, a new generation of activists were coming up, uh, Black women in particular, who were arguing that the original three tenets didn't include gender nonconforming and LGBT people. And so they added a fourth tenet to talk about the right to gender identity, sexual pleasure, and self-determination in terms of one's reproductive options and choices. I'm pleased to say that even though we didn't intend it to move so successfully from the margins to the center, it has done that. And it has supplanted how people talk about reproductive politics moving us beyond that pro-choice, pro-life, binary. People have realized that that framework, that limited framework has outlived its
11: usefulness. My name is Lorada Lee Wallace, and I am a organizer based in Oakland, California. And I um, work with our statewide abortion fund here in California called Access Reproductive Justice. So my first abortion, the pregnancy test came back positive. And before I could even get off the toilet with the pregnancy test in my hand, I had messaged one of my friends who I knew was very active in the repro space and was also on the board of our abortion fund back home. who was also like my supervisor at the time at the Reproductive Justice Org that I was working with. Um, I was like, hey, I'm pregnant don't want to be. What do I do? <laughs> like verbatim. And she was like, perfect. You came to the right place. We'll get you squared away. Like, what do you need? And I'm like, I can't afford an abortion first and foremost. I was a Medicaid recipient and we know because of like the Hyde Amendment that you can't, Medicaid recipients can't, you know, use their Medicaid to, provide, uh, to cover abortion costs. I was also a full-time student at the time, a couple years emancipated from the foster care system. So I was essentially like on my own um, and I had messaged her and asked her like, I, I don't know, what, I don't really know what I need right now, um, but I just need the money. Um, so I was able to pledge maybe like $100 to my abortion at the time, but that was all I could do. And the abortion fund covered the rest. But as I was in the clinic, I um, was like watching a bunch of news coverage around the murders of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey As I'm sitting in this abortion clinic, as I'm also thinking, like, I hope I don't get COVID. And also as my support people can't come in with me to the clinic because of COVID. So I'm like sitting here in this clinic for like, I have like three appointments, like two and a half, three hours at a time. Um, it's like peak COVID, Um, so I was able to get my abortion medication, but I had my appointment on a Friday and because the clinic wasn't open on Saturday or Sunday and there's that 24 hour waiting period, even though I had had the, um, my ultrasound and like everything was good to go, I had to wait until that following Monday to then get my medication. But then I had to wait another two and a half hours after the doctor got done seeing everybody to just to get my medication. Um, so I was able to get, you know, my medication and go home and, you know, finish my um, abortion and went back a few weeks later to make sure that um, I still didn't have like any retained products um, of the pregnancy. And I didn't. So I was fine. Um, but I did like dig cartwheels outside of the abortion clinic was so happy that it was finally over because I knew immediately when I was pregnant that I wanted to have an abortion. There was also no shame in it I was actually also very empowered that for like the first time in my life and realizing, you know, that this is a decision that I'm making for me. And historically, you know, black women and femmes have not been able to make their own reproductive decisions. And also as someone who's essentially been a ward of the state, you know, being owned, you know, by the state as a foster foster care youth. It made all the difference for me because I'm like, wow, this is like one of the biggest decisions for me. Um, in my life that I'm going, going to make or to not make, right? But regardless of what happens, is going to impact the trajectory of my life forever. So being able to, to make that decision as a Black person, first and foremost, um, and also for myself, made all the difference for me. When we come back, how abortion got politicized.
9: at purdueglobal.edu. Before Roe v. Wade, the pro-life
12: movement was not partisan.
0: Daniel Williams is a historian and author of Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before
12: Roe v. Wade. If one had to, to describe it as associated with a particular ideology rather than the other, it would be more accurate to describe it as a liberal political movement than a conservative one. Because the majority of pro-life activists before Roe were, for the most part, Democrats who believed in the principles of an expanded social welfare state. The pro-life movement was overwhelmingly Catholic before Roe v. Wade. And most Northeastern and Midwestern Catholics had, in the 1960s and early 1970s, been shaped to at least a certain extent By the assumptions of of new deal liberalism the assumptions that the state had an obligation to care for the less fortunate a number of pro-life activists in the late 1960s and early 1970s were also opposed to the vietnam war a number were very liberal democrats uh, a number had concerns about capital punishment uh, and some of the pro-life organizations at the time advocated expanded maternal health insurance subsidized daycare uh, other ways to to encourage women to not have abortions and to empower them to make the decisions not to have abortions.
8: What I call the abortion myth is the fiction that the religious right galvanized as a political movement in response to the Roe v. Wade decision of January 22nd, 1973. I'm Randall Balmer, John Phillips Professor in Religion at Dartmouth College. And my most recent book is Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. To understand the context, you have to understand that for roughly 50 years before that moment, evangelicals were not engaged politically, certainly not in an organized way. Many were not even registered to vote. And so their emergence as a political force in the 1970s was a major event. And as we see now, it really began the reshaping of the American political landscape.
0: On the subject of abortion and eventually Roe, evangelicals were actually supportive. In
8: 1968, Christianity Today magazine, which is the flagship magazine of evangelicalism, conducted a conference with the Christian Medical Society. Twenty-three heavyweight theologians from the evangelical world showed up and over several days debated the morality of abortion. At the conclusion of that meeting, they issued a statement saying, We can't decide whether or not abortion is a moral issue, but we think it should be available. In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, not known as the Redoubt of Liberalism, passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion, which they reaffirmed in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 1976. When the Roe v. Wade ruling was handed down, several evangelical leaders praised the Roe v. Wade decision.
0: The mobilization of evangelicals as a political movement did start with a court ruling, but it wasn't Roe. It was a ruling on segregated private schools that came out of a district court in Washington, D.C.
8: And on June 30, 1971, the district court ruled that Any organization that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not, by definition, a charitable institution, and therefore it has no claims on tax exempt status. As the Internal Revenue Service began to enforce that ruling over the course of the 1970s, it got the attention of places like Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, a fundamentalist school that had segregation virtually written into its charter as well as people like Jerry Falwell who had started his own segregation academy in Lynchburg Virginia in 1967. It's time now for the old time gospel hour with Jerry Falwell pastor of the Thomas Road Baptist Church
4: in Lynchburg Virginia. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ.
8: That of the is what God proved to be the catalyst for the organizing surrounding the religious right.
0: So how did the evangelical movement go from supporting school segregation to the powerful conservative force in American politics that it is today? The answer? A man named Paul Wyrick.
8: Weirich was clever enough to realize that organizing a political movement to defend racial segregation was not likely to generate a huge grassroots audience. So he made two moves. The first move he made was to say, no, we're not defending racial segregation. We are defending religious freedom, which is writing up page from the current religious right Republican Party playbook. His second move really fell into his lap, and that was the abortion issue. And that happened in 1978 in the midterm elections. Wyrick determined, according to his own account, to go out and elect some improbable people in 1978. He focused on four Senate races, and in all four of those elections, the final weekend, pro-lifers, leafleted church parking lots. And two days later, all four favored Democratic candidates lost to anti-abortion Republicans. He finally had found the issue that he could use to mobilize grassroots evangelicals. Abortion is a very, fairly low-cost political issue. A fetus does not demand health care. A fetus does not demand an education. And so the adoption of abortion as the central plank of the religious right early in the 1980s really didn't didn't cost them much in terms of a, a political price.
0: In the 1976 presidential election, evangelicals voted for one of their own, Jimmy Carter, a proud born-again Christian. But ahead of the 1980 election, evangelical leaders openly targeted the Democrat and sought to find a candidate who would do more for their cause. They began sort of canvassing the Republican field, looking for a
8: challenger to Jimmy Carter. And finally, of course, they settled on Ronald Reagan, an unlikely choice because here you had a uh, governor of California, Hollywood actor, um, Hollywood was not exactly known as a province of piety to many evangelicals, and somebody who had been divorced and remarried, who in 1967 had signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in the country. And uh, nevertheless, the religious right decided that Reagan was going to be their political messiah in 1980. I came across a memorandum from within the Reagan-Bush campaign, and I don't remember the precise date, but I believe it was September of 1980. And the internal memorandum said, we're in trouble here. Uh, We're not pulling away from Carter. We have to somehow rejig our message. And one of the recommendations was to start talking about abortion.
2: If there's even a question about when human life begins, isn't it our duty to err on the side of life? We must not rest, and I pledge to you
8: that I will not rest, until a human life amendment becomes a part of our
0: Constitution. With a so-called pro-life president in the White House, thanks to his evangelical base, the anti-abortion movement gets to work. Once again... Legal scholar Mary Ziegler.
7: Initially, the anti-abortion movement focused its attentions on a constitutional amendment that would have not just overturned Roe, but banned abortion coast to coast. By the early 80s, it was becoming increasingly clear that that just wasn't going to happen. So then the movement kind of changed its focus, and its inspiration in part came from a 1983 Supreme Court decision where Ronald Reagan's first nominee, Sandra Day O'Connor, writes this dissent, essentially suggesting that Roe doesn't make a lot of sense. And so the anti-abortion movement looks at this dissent and says, you know, if more people like Sandra Day O'Connor are on the court, we might not be able to get abortion banned nationwide, but we could at least get Roe overturned.
12: For groups like the National Right to Life Committee, overturning Roe v. Wade has become the holy grail, has, has become the raison d'etre of the pro-life movement, which it never originally was. Again, Daniel Williams. And once the strategy shifted to that as the goal, then it became very difficult for any pro-life activist to imagine supporting Democratic presidents or Democratic senators who would not want to see the Supreme Court shifted to the right on this particular issue. And similarly, with the Republican Party, it became more and more difficult for most pro-choice Republicans who care strongly about the issue to imagine staying in a party that was moving so decisively toward making Roe a thing of the past. If the goal is to appoint particular Supreme Court justices, then the situation that we're in today is one where Republican presidents are going to make sure that the justice that they appoint is going to likely vote to overturn Roe. And Democratic presidents, on the other hand, are always going to try to appoint a justice who supports abortion rights, who, who wants to leave the parameters of Roe intact. It was not clear until the early 1990s, at least, that Supreme Court appointments would decide the fate of Roe.
8: The Supreme Court, it's what it's all about. The justices that I'm going to appoint will be pro life. They will have a conservative bent.
7: Uh, I think the case that uh, most people are thinking about right now and the case that every nominee gets asked about, Roe v. Wade, can you tell me whether Roe was decided correctly? Senator,
8: again, I would tell you that Roe v. Wade, decided in 1973, is a precedent in the United States Supreme Court. It has been reaffirmed. Well, as a general proposition, I understand the importance of the precedent set forth in Roe v. Wade.
13: But again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law and decide cases as they come.
0: We'll be right
4: back.
9: at purdueglobal.edu.
0: Even if evangelicals didn't rally around the anti-abortion movement until the late 1970s, the anti-agitation started almost immediately after Roe. Here's sociologist Carol Jaffe. Roe
14: versus Wade was um, decided in January 1973. Literally four days later in Congress um, there was a resolution introduced the so-called Church Amendment, named after uh, Senator Frank Church, uh, saying that no entity would lose any funds if they refused to perform abortion. So it was clear to me that this was going to be an issue that was very divisive.
2: They called me and they said, would you be willing to help us start Uh, an outpatient abortion clinic in Boulder. And I said, yes, I think that would be an important thing to do because I thought that it would mean implementing the Roe versus Wade decision, which wouldn't mean anything unless doctors were doing abortions.
0: Dr. Warren Hearn is a physician and director of the Boulder Abortion Clinic in Boulder, Colorado. He specializes in abortions that are harder to get, the ones later in pregnancy. He's been doing this work for more than 50 years.
2: I thought I would do this for a year or two, then go back to school. I helped start this clinic. I was the founding medical director. I set up the clinic. I got the instruments and the equipment. I wrote the protocols. I devised the whole system. And then I was performing all the abortions there. And by the end of that first year, uh, it was clear to me that performing abortions was the most important thing that I could do in my medical career. Immediately, I became the target of very vicious attacks by the anti-abortion people. I started getting obscene death threats in the middle of the night. Two weeks after we opened the office, there was a lot of hist- hostility among, in the medical community. There were some doctors who supported what we were doing, uh, but it was very uh, tense and very difficult. It became clear to me that the resistance to this was really fanatic. That the anti-abortion people were really frightening. They were threatening me and other people. And I couldn't understand why this was so controversial because we were helping women. In 1988, there were five shots fired at the front windows of my office. Uh, One of the bullets just missed a member of my staff. I had just walked through the front room I really expect, uh, have expected for all this time to be assassinated at any time. So uh, when I'm leaving my office, I check the perimeter to see if they're out there. I cannot use the front door of my office when the anti-abortion people are demonstrated are out there because I have to assume that they're armed and they will kill me at the first opportunity. Five of my medical colleagues have been assassinated, several at point-blank range. I have received letters from the anti-abortion fanatics saying, don't bother wearing a bulletproof vest, we're going to go for a headshot. And that's what they did to Dr. Tiller.
7: One of the nation's most well-known late-term abortion doctors.
2: Dr. George Tiller was shot and killed in church yesterday. On May the 31st, 2009, uh, Dr. George Tiller was, uh, was an usher for his Lutheran church in Wichita. His wife was singing in the choir. Dr. Tiller was in the foyer of the church. Uh, Scott Roeder walked up to Dr. Tiller and shot him in the head, assassinating him.
14: To the abortion-providing community, Dr. Tiller was a saint. I mean, they literally referred to him as St. George. To the anti-abortion community, he was this egregious murderer.
0: Once again, Carol Jaffe.
14: There's only a handful of clinics in the United States where people can get later abortions. Later here meaning post 24 weeks. Dr. Hearn for many years has been one of them. He's been targeted for years. Dr. Tiller in Wichita, who was a very close friend of uh, of Dr. Hearn, he for years was targeted. Bill O'Reilly, when he had his Fox News show, repeatedly referred to him as Tiller the Killer.
2: Later that week, uh, the week that uh, Dr. Tiller was assassinated, I was invited to speak at the Temple Emanuel in Denver by the rabbi and the head head of the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights. I was there, taken there in an armored car by the, the U.S. federal marshals. My family was not allowed to be with me. They got there by other means. And there was a large group of people in the temple. It was a very, very emotional situation. They're talking about my friend who had been assassinated. And and, uh, so we're surrounded by armed officers. And at one point, our son said to his mom, Mommy, are we the good ones or the bad ones? On several occasions, when Dr. Tiller was assassinated, I was put under the 24-hour protection of U.S. federal marshals who were heavily armed. And one of the things they said, you may not sit with your back to the window. So when I'm out with friends or my family, you know, I'm in a restaurant, I I don't sit with my back to window. Uh, At home, we will not leave the window shades up at night. We close the window shades.
14: Where else in American medicine would we tolerate this? A very important concept for me in my work on abortion and trying to understand it, is the idea of abortion exceptionalism. And the idea that abortion is treated like no other aspect of, of the healthcare system in America. It's a common procedure. Uh, women who have babies at different time in their lives have abortions. Um, Sometimes they have babies first and then an abortion. Sometimes they have an abortion and then have babies when they're more ready to to have children. Uh, A very common procedure. But where else do we see pickets? Do we see blockades? Do we see shootings? Do we see regulation that that, that exists nowhere else? I mean, state legislators, over a thousand restrictions passed over the the years. I mean, just regulating it in ways that are inappropriate.
2: I will never forget the young woman who was a teenager in high school from Northern State. And she looked at me and said, Thank you for giving me back my life. Well, you know, uh, nothing takes the place of that. Another young woman, the first year I was doing this, told me how she felt it makes me choke up every time I think about it. And, and she said, please don't ever stop doing this. So, you know, this it moves me 50 years later. Okay. To think about it. So I think that, um, it's very important to concentrate on this human interaction, this human process of one person helping another person. That's what the practice of medicine is.
0: To be an abortion doctor, then and now, takes a particular type of person. We wanted to learn more about the people going into this profession in the midst of all this controversy.
13: I think I was attuned to the need to fight for your reproductive freedom because I was born at home. And home birth is also very controversial. So when I was born in Connecticut in 1990, it wasn't legal. <laughs> so I feel like I came into this world being like, yeah, you need to fight for your bodily autonomy and for your reproductive experience. I'm Kaylin Gregory Davis, and I am a medical student at uh, UVM Larner College of Medicine. I'm a fourth year, and I'm going into OBGYN at Brown. So I really always wanted to be a midwife. That was what I wanted to do when I was younger. And so to get involved, um, I first became a doula, um, which is you know a non-medical labor and pregnancy support person. I got trained with the Doula Project of New York City, which is actually an organization that does um, birth doula services, but it also does abortion doula services. And I ended up absolutely loving my abortion doula shifts. Um, I would go into the Planned Parenthood and up in the Bronx and also in Brooklyn um, and would just be with people through their abortion. And so from there, I decided that I wanted to be an abortion provider, um, which kind of steered me into a different path than than midwifery, um, in part just because... You know, nurse midwives can do abortions in some states, but it's a little bit limited. And yeah, I didn't wanna be limited by anything. And I knew that like politically things could always change. And so I felt like I needed to get a degree that would be the most likely um, for these procedures to be accessible to me. So in terms of abortion training, I think there are a lot of places and especially now as laws are going to change If a hospital's not able to do abortions, then, like, nobody can get trained, right? Like, there needs to be the procedures in order to train the next generation. So if a hospital or a state um, decides that it's illegal, then, like, no students in that state are going to be able to get trained. I think it's probably already happening. I know it's been a big issue in Texas um, since SB8. And that has had a big effect on where I applied to residency. Um, so I was applying in this, this past fall, um, you know, SB-8 was underway. And I pretty much did not apply or at least didn't interview um, at any states where I felt like if Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion would become illegal. I came to medical school so that I could do this work. I didn't come to medical school to like be an MD so that I could deliver babies all the time, although that's great. Um, And so I have had the thought like, oh my gosh, what if this becomes like entirely illegal? And then I went to medical school and can't do the thing that I wanted to do. Um, And so that feels really kind of like an uncertain future. Um, But it also just inspires me to like do everything I can to keep this accessible and also to get all the training that I can get.
15: My name is Dr. Bhavik Kumar, I use he, him pronouns and I'm a family medicine physician working at Planned Parenthood. So I provide abortion care here. I'm also the medical director for primary and trans care. So provide some primary care and gender care as well. Um, and I've been in Texas for about seven years now. For me, growing up in Corsicana, uh, being, we were undocumented at the time, and then uh, being you know, brown skinned, gay, and then experiencing 9 11. Uh, in that town and the overt racism and really recognizing what life is like for people like me compared to other people. And then once I was in medical school, I was pro-choice, had no sense of, you know, wanting to become an abortion provider, but then learned about how safe it is, how common it is, how few providers there are and what a drastic difference it makes. Recognized that there's a concentration of abortion access among folks of color that most people are low-income or poor. And it just was like, you know, of course, if I want to help people like me, even though I can never become pregnant, then the best thing I can do as a doctor is to provide abortion care.
0: The abortion care that Dr. Kumar had wanted to provide has been severely restricted since September 2021, when Texas enacted Senate Bill 8, which effectively prohibits abortions, after six weeks.
15: So we went from providing care up to um, 20 weeks uh, of of conception, which we were able to see the vast majority of folks. Now, with Senate Bill 8, I would say we're seeing about a third to a half of the patients that come into our clinics and providing an abortion for them. And the rest of the patients or folks that we're seeing we're instead helping them figure out how to get out of state. So that means travel, um, taking time off of work, About 60% of folks that access abortion in the country already have children at home. We're, We're spending a lot of time navigating that. There is a lot of anxiety, stress that is new and different from what I've experienced in the last seven years providing abortion care among people and also staff, because I think for me and the staff that I work with, we all show up to help people. They're pregnant. They know that they can't be pregnant we can make them feel better. We can help them with that. That's what our job is. And that's been taken away from us. And now we're in crisis with our patients and they're asking us, am I gonna get there? What if the clinic closes? What if I don't make it? What if my car doesn't make? All of these questions and it's like, oh, we can't help you and we feel their stress. So it is, I think, and I'm, even as I'm talking, I'm feeling the stress of my neck. I was like, Because it is every single day for the last eight months of seeing so many patients that we're not able to help It is just very, very heavy and traumatic, I think, for all of us.
3: So last summer, my husband and I found out we were pregnant with our first child. Um, And after being cautiously optimistic through the first trimester, doing a variety of testing and sonograms, we believe we are in the clear and began to share the news with our friends and our family. And at around 13 weeks, we had a routine sonogram where the doctor suddenly saw um, a thickened band behind the baby's neck flagging us to go get additional imaging by kind of assuring us that it was probably nothing to worry about. A week later, the fetal medicine sonographer was able to get a clear picture and see a variety of health issues with our baby. And following that sonogram, we went and sat in this room and heard a group of doctors and geneticists explain the findings and let us know that it was unlikely that our baby would survive past birth. And their recommendation was to do a CVS test that day to try to define what exactly it was, which they were thinking was likely chromosomal. And unfortunately, the results of this test can take weeks, to get back. So we went home that day knowing that our pregnancy likely would need to be terminated, but with no real clear answer on when we would know exactly what was causing the issue. So over the next several days, we deliberated over what to do. And with something like medical termination, the doctor cannot explicitly tell you what to do. But with nothing but the sonogram findings, that's all we really had to go off of. And so, you know, I I spent a lot of time talking about what our options were, and I just couldn't bear holding our baby for weeks as my belly began to grow, knowing that it was only really a matter of time until we would have to end the pregnancy. And so we ultimately decided to end the pregnancy with a D&E procedure, which is... um, A surgery that's done when you're in your second trimester, so it's a little bit more involved. And so as soon as we made the decision, it quickly became very cut and dry, um, and it was it was pretty void of emotional support uh, from that point on. And my doctor, or the doctor who was performing the surgery actually had to meet with me um, to confirm that I understood what this decision meant. Um, And that this was something that I wanted to do, Um, which, you know, obviously this was the furthest thing from what I wanted to do. I was given medicine a few hours in advance of the surgery to begin the process. And as I drove to the hospital with my husband, I, you know, started to experience tremendous physical pain as the process slowly was starting. And prior to the surgery, as I lied in the hospital bed, waiting to be wheeled off, I was asked countless times what I was there for, forcing me to repeat over and over that I was there for D&E to end my pregnancy. The physical and emotional pain of this day, these weeks, and the pain that I continue to carry from this experience will stay with me forever, and they continue to have lasting impacts on so many parts of my life. And so I just think that until you've gone through something like this, you can't not imagine the trauma and sadness of these moments that I'm describing. Um, and you know, this was such a isolating experience, um, more than I ever imagined it would be. Yet, the more I speak about it, the more I realize how I'm not alone. Um, as I've shared my stories or looked for support, I have found people that have gone through what I've gone through and realized that while we are a very small percentage, um, there is a community of us out there. I wanted and I still want nothing more than to have a baby and so terminating this pregnancy was the hardest decision of my life and it was not something I could have ever imagined or wanted. And I feel thankful that I live in a city where I did have access to incredible health care that would allow me and only me to ultimately make this decision.
0: Abortion, the Body Politic is executive produced by me, Katie Couric, and was created by a small team led by our intrepid supervising producer, Lauren Hansen. Editing and sound design by Derek Clements and Jessica Kreinchich. Production help from Julia Weaver. Research by Nina Perlman. And a special thanks to KCM producers, Courtney Litz and Adriana Fazio.